Hello everyone and welcome back to Identity Architects, the podcast that's dedicated to spotlighting individuals who are changing the way that data is used to deliver better customer experiences. I'm your host Ben Cicchetti and for this episode our Director of Business Development Val Mercurio spoke with Piper Heitzler, Head of Growth EMEA at Amobi. Val and Piper had an incredible conversation, not only discussing the future of our industry and trends we're seeing right now, but also reflecting on Women's History Month, their journey to this point and how we can empower the next generation of women in the industry. Before I hand it over to Val and Piper, just a reminder to hit that subscribe button wherever you enjoy podcasts so you know when the next episode of Identity Architects lands. But now, without any further delay, here's Val and Piper. Hey Piper, how are you today? Hey Val, I'm doing great, dialing from gloriously gray London. How about yourself? <laughs> doing well, it is sunny here in New York, which is great. Um, I'm so excited for today's session with you. So to kind of kick off, for anyone who doesn't know you, can you give us a quick intro to Piper Heitzler and, and to Moby overall and kind of what you're focused on there? Yeah, absolutely. So I've been in Moby for five and a half years now. And I've done a multitude of roles, but in my current role, I'm the head of growth of EMEA. So I oversee the marketing, public relations, business development, and solutions engineering functions for this region. And if you're not familiar with Amobi, um, we are a wholly owned subsidiary of one of the largest telecommunications companies in the world, Singtel. And like other telcos, they wanted to invest in a high growth asset, which was a Mobi, a mobile ad network at a time. Um, over that 12 year period, we've really grown through a number of acquisitions, which have been, of course, through Contera, which was a great consumer insights and sentiment analysis tool that could help brands understand what audiences and categories and topics were being consumed on web, digital, social, and even TV platforms. Um, we also acquired uh, Turn, so that was a natively integrated data management and demand side platform that oversat an advanced analytics warehouse. Um, that at the time was really synergistic with what Amobi had been doing previously, which was this real-time contextual targeting on both the previously acquired mobile ad network and then a global ad network of Edconian. And then in 2018, when the market seemed to be taking strides and picking lanes, Amobi was very much um, encouraged by the growth to come in TV and video. And so we acquired Videology, which of course had done a lot of work around the convergence between traditional linear television and digital television, CTV, OTT, as we knew it. And I would say that that's a pretty good bet. So we've <laughs> definitely continued to be a video-led um, cross-screen advertising platform that not only has the breadth of channels, from TV, digital, social, audio, digital out of home, native, you name it, but also a diverse amount of buy types. So everything from upfront negotiated deals to reserved PMPs and even open exchange inventory, we work across the breadth and depth of inventory and sources where they come from. Yeah. So that's, that's a bit about me and what wow. I do. So you have a very light plate, it feels like, is basically yeah. what you're telling us here, listening. Yeah, completely, <laughs> I, running around a lot. 
I always have to say, and I, I always admire it so much, but five years at one one role in the ad tech world seems to be anomaly at, at these times. So that's really exciting. And it, it feels like they're keeping you very busy. So congrats on all of that hard work. Oh, and thanks, Val. Of course. And so with that, we'll hop right into our quick fire questions. Just, you know, getting you comfortable joining Identity Architects today and, and making sure that we learn a little bit more about you before we dive into the nitty gritty. Are you ready? Are you ready? Yeah. Fire away. <laughs> Let's hear it. So to start off, it, it would be great to understand what your earliest memory of advertising and marketing is. Hmm. So I actually traveled to Hong Kong with my parents when I was about 14. And I think that experience of seeing the way in which luxury brands to even foods in a grocery store were being marketed and across the different cultures and just what was attractive about that. And so intriguing was just how the, the differentiation or the versatility of what you saw and how people were marketing in different places that were so foreign to somebody born and raised in Los Angeles at the time. That's awesome. And obviously, being in Hong Kong, you were so fascinated that you entered entered into a, a career path of such. And so what was your first job in either advertising or marketing? Yes. So I started where I think everyone should start as a programmatic and social trader at an ad tech company. So it was in Los Angeles, California called Steelhouse, has now been rebranded to Mountain, but we were giving Critio a run for, the, for their money at the time in the retargeting, remarketing space, which is obviously very hot. And I got to work across a number of DSPs, many of which still exist today, like the Trade Desk or DB360, but also a lot that have been consolidated or acquired. So these Centros, the Tube Moguls, plenty of others, but that really gave me the diversity of technology and software platforms and really the evolution of what, what happened. Awesome. And knowing, knowing what you know now, what would you say to yourself in, in starting that career? I mean, I think I'd say the same thing to myself then as I say to myself now, which is change doesn't just happen. It is constant. And it really is an opportunity to embrace what's new. Um, I also think that there's a sense of staying focused on pushing yourself will always yield good results. Like people will notice when you will work hard. And that is a great way to open up doors and opportunities for yourself. But of course, having patience... <laughs> I think that that can be very tough in a fast-moving industry like today. It's just having the patience to, to remember that good things will come to you and also to show that you care around the, the people around you and invest in your time and the businesses that you work with. Certainly. And I, I say that frequently, right? Change is the only constant. <laughs> and Completely. It's okay. Right. It's learning that adaptation and figuring out, OK, it doesn't mean that things are ending. It just means we're going to learn a new way to kind of go with the flow and figure things out together. So I definitely yeah. resonate with that. Completely like pivot, pivot, pivot. Yes, exactly. It's like the uh, isn't that a friend's meme where they're they're trying to get the couch up the stairs and they just keep yelling pivot. That's yes. Yes. Completely. <laughs> And so what, what do you love about what you do right now and about the industry that you're in? 
Oh, well, I mean, I told, I said earlier that I oversee a number of different functions like BD, solutions engineering, marketing, PR. And I love this combination of departments because we really get to start at the forefront of who should we as a DSP in the space be partnering with? Who is innovative? Who is doing something cool and unique that we can bring to our clients? And a lot of that partnership comes down to ideation and creativity about what our assets can bring together to provide. We then move into the product development process and the nitty gritty of bringing that idea to life. And then ultimately seeing clients test these solutions and then overall bringing them to market into the greater world through public relations is kind of the, the feedback loop that I continually get to do and oversee every day. So that's what's exciting. Definitely. I mean, it's that true kind of GM overseeing from start to finish, which is such an exciting place to be, I always think. And it really is. How are we looking at all of these teams and making sure that they're consistent and working cohesively within the industry and within your company? So that's awesome. And Yeah. And I think kind of moving through that, right, uh, within advertising, we love to use this concept of identity. And I know it's always a buzzword. I, I formerly worked at an identity partner. So for me, probably a little more so than others. And so the ability to identify individuals across devices and platforms, it, it's something that resonates really well. It's something, you know, every week it almost feels like we're hearing a new identity partner pop up. And so from your perspective, how would you explain identity to a 10-year-old? Hmm. I'd first start with the intention, which is that the point of identity is for brands to deliver recommendations that you, the 10-year-old, might like, (laughs) period. And that can happen in two very distinct ways. They either know exactly who you are, so they have a name, they have an address, And that's one way that they can give recommendations to you as opposed to your neighbor. Or identity is a way for them to understand your behaviors and then recommend what you might like. So if you, the 10-year-old, are watching, I have two nieces, so I'm trying to think of what they like, Frozen 2. (laughs) If If you're watching Frozen 2, you might actually like watching Finding Nemo as opposed to watching some show about um, a reality show about people selling expensive houses. (laughs) But ultimately, I think underneath the architecture that we build this up to be, it's just about delivering relevant messages to people. Certainly. And I I love the way that you put that and really even even resonating back to the 10 year old. I think when when I have this question, I I just went, I I can't even explain it to people of my age. But (laughs) I love love the focus that you had there and, and really, you know, focusing on that identity of the 10 year old. So that's great. And pivoting to a little bit of a a deeper subject during our quick fire round is understanding like what what is it that keeps you up at night? Well, right now, Amobi is re-entering the continental European market at scale. So I'm trying to be mindful of all the different cultural and language differentiations between each country is enormous and keeps me up at night. But Um, It also is kind of this beautiful parallel to what I said earlier about going to Hong Kong because, you know, my 
that's really what my adult self wanted to do was be in this international marketing role, talking to people of different languages and cultures and understanding them better. And now I get to kind of do that in real life with a real life business and yeah. a real life value proposition that needs to be standardized, but unique enough to address the market landscape in different countries like Germany and Spain and the Netherlands and the Nordics and France, you name it. That's incredible. And it really does, right? It resonates with that first memory that you had in Hong Kong. And now being able to bring that back to your everyday life, I feel it probably leads into our, our second question of this, which is what that's what keeps you up at night. But then what, what keeps you motivated in the morning? <laughs> Ooh, this would probably be a better question for my husband. But I hate to say this. I wake up motivated. <laughs> so back in L.A., I really think that it came from all the sunshine, but now that I live in London and it's no longer 330 days of sunlight, but rather 330 days of gray, I can still say that that attitude has continued to wake up excited and refreshed to start the day every morning. That's awesome. And I... I do really resonate with that well when we think about, okay, like getting up and having a natural element to that to some degree. <laughs> it definitely aids it. So that's awesome. And mm -hmm. to close out our quick fire questions, if there was a song that was a soundtrack to your life, what would it be? Easy. Don't Stop Me Now by Queen. Yes. So I very much, you know, live by my own advice to stay focused, continue pushing myself, but also have a really fun time doing it. And I think that's just the, the culture of a movie that's kept me around and the culture of who I work with today is that everyone's really motivated and passionate and focused on delivering to the ambitions we have. And you can't stop us now. <laughs> I love that. That is a great answer. And I have to say, I mean, even just during our regular calls and during this podcast, I always get excited talking to you and just hearing your energy through through video camera or phone calls. And it's a really exciting thing to see. And oh, thanks, Val. Next time we'll be in person in a yeah. proper recording studio. Somebody <laughs> will jump across the Atlantic Ocean. Definitely. I, I volunteer. That's okay. I'll, I'll take oh, one. <laughs> yes, completely. Come, come. Plenty of pubs for you to see. Yes. <laughs> awesome. And so with that, it is time to move into our topic-related questions. And the first question that we have and kind of diving deeper is something that, you know, I know we've connected on personally and thinking about it, something near and dear to our hearts, but we couldn't go through this session without giving a shout out. It is International Women's Month and you have obviously personally had some game-changing, empowering opportunities throughout your career, thinking about being born in the U.S. and in sunny L.A., right, motivating you to get up. <laughs> And now that you're living in the UK, it would be great for you to kind of take us back and talk about how we can empower the next generation of women in the ecosystem. Yeah, I mean, if I were to start not at the beginning of the beginning, but maybe at least just a handful of years ago, I was on the solutions engineering side. So very much technical minded and a male dominated environment. And so you know, even with working with clients and executive teams and at brands and agencies and product people, they're all a very male dominated environment. And it's not necessarily um, 
just being in a male dominated environment and seeing a woman, but really being inspired by someone that you see. And for me, when I joined Amobi, I was incredibly charmed by our female CEO at the time, Kim Perel, who was the epitome of proof that there was no glass ceiling at this company. You know, if a female can be the CEO, any female can do anything that they want. So it's not just having that pinnacle, but also that, that sense of empowerment that comes underneath and into the organization at large. If I think about how to empower the next generation of women, it also comes down to being in those male-dominated environments and working with males who also make sure to give the opportunities to women. So I was incredibly lucky that I worked with two incredible managers, um, which were our ex-chief strategy officer, Philip Smolin, as well as the SVP of Global Solutions Engineering, Alex Nunson. And there was an opportunity a few more years ago, which was to go to Singapore to work on a project with the telecommunications companies that sat underneath Singtel's umbrella. And we had recently lost our solutions engineer out in APAC at the time. And I kind of raised my hand-ish, thinking that I might be interested in doing it. And Alex at the time just absolutely gave it to me and empowered me and pushed me to go. And I ended up you know, living in Singapore part-time for a couple years, having this amazing experience to, to learn about that culture and to interact with new teams and agencies that I never would have been exposed to. So it not only takes a bit of motivation yourself to, to put your hand up even just a little bit, but also maybe a big kick in the butt when someone knows that you can do something. And if you're in a structure that has males doing that right now, that's still perfectly great. Because I think that that's um, just diversity and seeing beyond the idea of just women, you know, but it's just giving opportunity to those that deserve it, independent of their race, gender, ethnicity, you name it. And just being a mentor, you know, is fundamentally how we, we bring this excitement and empowerment into every kind of group or human being that we work with. Um, I do, I do, now that I've uh, been here in the UK, for people that want to get more involved in empowering other women of the generation, there's an incredible organization called Digital Learning, and they have some master classes and programs that they provide to local, to local children around, which helps them with different digital skills. And that's just a really cool way if you want to get involved and you happen to be in the local London area. Um, you know, you can actually make a difference and empower somebody as opposed to taking action after listening to this podcast. So yes. they have a, a program called Girl Rise, which I highly recommend. And I'm very excited. I just learned about it and I've already sub submitted my, my forms to get involved. So empowerment takes action, both on everyone's part. Awesome. And I love that so much. It really is kind of the the reality of it, we can talk about it until we're blue in the face, but at the end of the day, if we're not taking an action and, and making a change, then words can only go so far. So I love I love the call outs and I'm definitely looking forward into researching on them after after we're done recording. Yeah, absolutely. Anyone feel free to reach out if you're interested in learning more. <laughs>
<laughs> Amazing. And kind of pivoting from that, I know, you know, we've we've talked regularly and part of the reason that we connected was you had met our CRO, Richard Foster, and our SVP of Northern Europe and Italy, Stu Coleman, in January of 2020. And so when we think about this industry, everyone's always like, it's so big. Uh, but anytime I'm sure you walk into a room, you find you find all these people that all of a sudden you know, and yeah. so how how would you say that networking has impacted your career and your work to help you get to where you are now? Mm-hmm. So networking is just a combination of um, probably two phrases: making friends and learning about others. And if you couldn't tell, I like to do both of those. <laughs> Very friendly. So when I actually completely remember the day that I was here in our fantastic King's Cross office. We went up to the third floor to meet this this company, InfoSum, and we had heard, we kind of researched online, they were a data cleanroom architecture. And this is, you know, a couple years ago now. So it was very new concept at the time. And Richard and Stu walked in and Stu approached the whiteboard, which there is nothing I love more than someone who confidently wants to go on the whiteboard just solutions engineering in me, put it on the whiteboard and diagram it. And Stu did a full diagram of the InfoSum bunker architecture and how you guys could, um, could merge but never move data sets. And that was such a cool uh, just exercise and presentation. And from that moment, I knew we, we had to partner together. So sometimes networking, aka making friends, is and learning about what they do is all the more inspiring for for getting yourself out there. And in this case, we ended up uh, deciding that we would create uh, the very first DSP plus, you know, data clean room infrastructure architecture partnership that had happened in the market. And so that's how we we came to launch. We did press, I think in June of 2020, and it was I mean, tremendous feedback. Uh, being a literal industry first. So that's that's how I would say when we met, it was great. And that's the power of networking and learning people. And Rich, still to this day, and obviously yourselves, you know, there's such a small circle in this world of ad tech, ad tech and martech and inventory and data, you name it, that there's, um, you just got to get yourself out there. So one of the, you know, Obviously, moving from Los Angeles, where you have some of these industry groups like Think LA that are very easy to get into, you know, research what's in your area or how people are interacting. I know here in London, I just went to this International Women in Programmatic Network uh, event last week, which was fantastic, wonderful guest speakers. Actually, the very first fighter jet pilot female in the Royal Air Force, which was so cool. So... I would say just get involved, get involved and network, go make some friends. You'll probably learn some really great things when you do. Yeah, absolutely. I couldn't agree more. And it really is like, even if someone feels a little uncomfortable at first, you kind of walk into that room and it appears that everyone around you knows each other. It it really is this big open ecosystem where I've never been at an event where I've seen someone walk away and just say, no, we don't want to talk to you. It's not how it works. And so once you can really put yourself out there, I've also seen some tremendous benefits from that. Yeah, completely. Especially when you're there and you're like, oh, should I go? I always at any quote networking event, 
I will say to myself, just two more people. Once you <laughs> once you meet two more people, you can you can leave and you can go home. And usually if you make the commitment to make two just outright, you'll probably end up meeting 10 or more. But sometimes you just need to give yourself that little nudge of oh, minimum. Yeah. It is, right? It's the, it's the psyche effect of, okay, I can do this. I'm going to go. And I agree. And I think the more exposure that you can get outside of, of work as well, where, you know, we have events that we, we go to as companies, but then also the ones where you get to push yourself out of your comfort zone a little bit to mm -hmm. a network that you may not have been privy to before. And even from my perspective, I, I recently joined a new volunteer organization here in New York. And it was a lot of, okay, walking into this room where I literally don't know one face Yes. How do I do that? And I started training myself back to the first time I ever went to a work conference. I'm like, I know how to do this. <laughs> Let's yeah, go in there. Put a smile on. Exactly. <laughs> awesome. And so, not to make a hard pivot, but we're, we're going to do it again, is uh, thinking about, you know, 2023, getting closer, coming with the cookie-less era, it's approaching. Are you prepared for a post-third-party cookie world? And what three things would you recommend to every brand advertiser and what they should be doing in 2022 to prepare for that cookie-less era? Yeah, I'm just gonna skip to the because obviously I'm always prepared. No, this isn't this isn't meant to talk about that per se. I'd like to focus really on what brands or marketers should be thinking about right now. And I think the first first category is just determine what is your most important channel and business outcome. Then build a technology stack around that strategy. So, is email important to you? Is that where the bulk of your budget is spent? If yes. Having scalable CRM data should be at the heart of your technology evaluation criteria when you look at the market. Um, if it's programmatic, then scalable digital investments based off of anonymized, contextual, user-based strategies, that should be a part of the decision you make when you select your technology partners. And what we find is that brands sometimes do the reverse of how their budget is spent. So brands that spend an enormous amount on digital will end up picking a technology partner that is really good at scalable CRM data. And in your mind, you're like, you're a CPG company. What is that CRM data? So starting from the foundation of what you want to achieve and then build the partners around that is super important to do now. And I think this is a, a good crack in the concrete foundation, so to speak, knowing we're moving into another phase that you can reassess who your partners are at this moment and see if they're going to take you into the next five years, even though they've been fantastic partners the last five or 10. Number two, I would say, this might be controversial, create a POV that does not rely on Google. You don't know, antitrust, there's a lot of things moving on there. Um, just be prepared. If it went away, if it broke up, how would that affect your business? And then third is, of course, start testing. So work with partners who support a diversity of cookie-less tactics and test them now when you have performance data coming from cookie-based strategies that you can compare them to. So you know, test a clean room architecture and understand how your data would be processed through there and do that match test, do that activation. Um, you're going to be a lot more confident walking into the cookie list era, if you have a playbook underneath your arm 
as opposed to navigating that terrain for the very first time. In addition, a lot of your benchmarks are probably based on cookie currencies, and you surely want to be able to understand how those are going to change and shift as opposed to getting in a couple years from now and always trying to meet unrealistic benchmark expectations that have been set in the past five or 10. Certainly. And I think you, you said it best, right? It's we have to learn to adopt. And coming in, we literally started this podcast focusing on being able to adapt to change. And I think as we kind of look and, and everyone's catching up and thinking about the ecosystem, but it's slow and, and people are scared just because it's new and it's like a really new way of thinking instead of just a, a little pivot. It, it's a full transformation of your strategy. But I love what you said about right now is the time to be taking advantage of these new technologies to really focus on testing for the future and what that will look for you in 2023. So that's awesome. Mm -hmm. And uh, from from your experience, uh, I would love to hear, I feel like you've already shared a little bit of wealth of knowledge in the different countries that you've traveled to and where you've been focused, but talk to us about some of the differences in the regions before between EMEA, North America, and APAC. What are some of the common differences that you've noticed? Yeah, I think the surefire answer is privacy and compliance. I'm not going to completely um, lean on that flag. I'll give you something else because I think we talk about privacy and compliance enough. Uh, I think how TV, knowing that that's sort of the next area of disruption in general, and that's what we're really focused on here in EMEA, is how TV is bought and sold is an enormous difference between EMEA, North America, and APAC. Um, you know, the concept of the upfronts is very, very focused on North America. You have a, uh, an environment and an ecosystem that's based off of broadcasters and content owners and numerous distribution methods that are very reliant on partnerships between like your pay, telco, TV operators, um, as opposed to your direct, you know, OTT apps and making sure that you can monetize and every partner gets to monetize in that supply chain. That's very different to EMEA, where you might have just um, you know, two broadcaster groups in a country that control an equal amount of market share, and they have a sales house that is grouping all that inventory together in order to sell it to both local and international buyers. Um, the, I think that the, the consolidation that has happened in EMEA is really unique as they see the competitors of their inventory, you know, to be Google and Facebook and and not and Netflix, you know, so they really need to band together in order to combat those US tech giants, which in the US we're still looking for that that era of consolidation as some of these big broadcasters duke it out, creating their own SVOD and AVOD services that they're trying to get every single person to pay for or log into and build these subscriber pools. Um, you know, I think that this collaboration that has to happen because the markets are smaller, but need to collaborate on a bigger scale uh, is, is very unique. And that's, you know, exactly what someone like RTL Group, as a the largest free-to-air broadcaster conglomerate has done around continental Europe, is unify a lot of these players so that they can innovate and that they can have a strategy that's larger than themselves to bring them into the next decade. 
certainly. And I think that's a really, really interesting fact, just as we think specifically on TV. And, and it's one of those areas where even the more that I'm learning about some of our global regions that we're focused on, it really is you know, looking at the market and saying, wow, if, if you're not one of these broadcasters, there's really, you kind of have to buy in and then help innovate within those different systems and how you can really build a difference. And I'm curious to see kind of who makes it out in the U.S. On, on top as we think about the consolidation and the innovation across the ecosystem. Yeah. And I think InfoSum has had a really unique uh play to make in that in that ecosystem because you have these very robust broadcasters in cases with very unique uh, subscriber sets like ITV here in the UK who obviously we work with ITV and ITV works with InfoSem it's a nice little triangle partnership there um, where you guys can actually allow other brands to take advantage of those those subscribers in a multitude of different use cases. Certainly. And and it really is. It's how are we helping power these networks, no matter how however they end up, but how are we empowering them to really focus on taking back control of their privacy and the value of their data all at once. And so it's it's definitely been a really fun experience learning a lot more about where we play in the ecosystem and how we're able to adapt to all of the different markets that you just talked about and the differences amongst them. Yeah, and something I think really synergistic about InfoSum and Amobi itself is our um, ambition to keep an independent ecosystem and content diversity that is accessible by everyone and making sure that those media owners and broadcasters have the full control of how they utilize and allow access to, to their most valuable assets, which is their data and inventory. Yeah. I couldn't agree more. And as we kind of move into the the next question, right, as we think about marketing and we're thinking about the consumers and what their needs are, it also includes data privacy and and really shifting away from third-party cookies as we kind of covered on earlier. But specifically for Amobi, right, like what are some of the challenges that your clients face and and how does Amobi support them as a business? Mm -hmm. One of the key challenges that we hear from our clients is number one, that they think a cookie-less currency is going to solve all of their problems. And I think other platforms in this space that have gone all in on creating their own identity and own ID solution, they have to back that up with the principles that it is going to solve everything because it would be counterintuitive to not say that it was as they're bringing it to market. Um, Because Amobi is not, you know, because we're all in for this idea of diversifying your identity options and the ways in which that you can have cookie-less targeting strategies. Um, you know, we, we get to give that recommendation to our clients and help them solve it, which is literally diversify. Be ready for absolutely anything. Be testing, be creating strategies around um, understand how cohorts are going to work, understand how the Google Topics API will work, understand how contextual works. Are there segmentation strategies that you should be thinking about within contextual? Is that different than what a user-based strategy looks like, whether it's a contextual or um, a cookie-less solution or, you know, a probabilistic methodology? Um, you, should be, you should be ready. The second thing I would say is um, a big challenge is for clients that hear 
about the need to build up a first party data pool, but they don't have any. So fortunately, um, Amobi, we actually come to the table with a multitude of data that our clients can use. And that seems to be a very, very big value proposition for these brands that don't have that, that enormous data pool already built up with a bunch of insights. So they can use, for example, our brand intelligence tool to understand the different category, competitive, and audience insights across the world in a number two of different languages even um, to really create real-time contextual strategies that drive performance, similar to user-based strategies they've been probably using for a while. Yeah. I love that. And I think thinking about Amobi and where you sit, it, it's really how are you empowering your clients to find that diverse platform and across all of these different opportunities, which is always so exciting to really see in, in real time. And as we think about the market specifically, right, where where we've seen a lot of acquisitions and market shifts over the past few months and years of just, right, it's like, who's coming next? <laughs> what announcement's coming out this week? Uh, one of the latest was definitely Crudio acquiring IP on web. And when we think about that, obviously, retail media is a really big topic and trend and a buzzword, in my opinion, at times, <laughs> just because I, I think people talk about it in a sense where it's a lot going out, but not necessarily as much coming in. But what are your what are your thoughts on kind of that type of acquisition? And, and where do you see the retail media networks being adapted in, into other industries? Yeah, there, the number of acquisitions that are happening these days is just just wildfire, to say the least. But all of them seem, seem to um, focus around a central theme, which is data access for reporting that can help brands connect to business outcomes, just whatever that might be. And a part of connecting to business outcomes requires a very advanced identity infrastructure. So when we look at Critio acquiring IP on web for what was it, $330 million purchase price, that's, you know, that allows Critio's commerce media platform to have more first scalable first party data that can then help them move out of the retargeting category, which they were competing with, you know, a very younger Piper on, and really up into this like mid and upper funnel, um, sort of like branding and awareness category while still connecting to these lower funnel outcomes. And that I've been hearing a word, I can't tell you where it is, so I'm very sorry if I'm stealing somebody's, but brand formance, I think is the perfect word to describe what everybody is trying to do right now. Like no matter what kind of campaign that you're, you're sending or you're delivering, it always needs to connect back to some sort of business outcome, and which typically comes down to a revenue number, a lead, a, a, a dollar amount. <laughs> and, um, you know, you kind of see this happening in other verticals as well. So, you know, Spotify acquired Chartable as well as pod sites. That's to give better metrics and reporting on people that are delivering these, you know, mid higher funnel strategies still need to tie back to business outcomes. They're going to get more money. Um, you also have WPP that acquired village marketing in North America, which is known as one of the industry leaders in the influencer marketing space. And guess why? Well, they want to collide the principles of programmatic buying with the creator economy 
because they want to more accurately understand the outcomes and the results that the creators are delivering for different brands that they work for. So everywhere we are seeing this brand formance type of idea, and it really comes back down to acquiring data access that allows for better reporting that connects to business outcomes. And I think we'll continue to see a lot more of that in the future too. Yes. I, I feel it's kind of scary to think about it, but we are kind of at the, the just getting started <laughs> phase of it, right? Yeah. <laughs> it's always frightening to feel that way, but it has been really exciting. And just sometimes it's, you know, one after another, after another. And what, what is that portfolio? And I spend a lot of time with my partners saying, Hey, you know, you made this acquisition. What does that actually mean for your business? Right? What was that yeah. value asset that you're really looking to achieve? Mm-hmm. And with that, before we move into our final, final questions, this is a pre-final question, is <laughs> we are more and more seeing collaborations that weren't possible, right? As we think about collaboration and what that means for the ecosystem, a lot of times people didn't even know that things were relevant because in the back of our minds, we never thought about building that. And so from your perspective, what collaborations would you like to see more of out there and are there industries that you would like to see having more collaborations? Yeah, the first one, which is more so a trend coming from the U.S. over into into EMEA, is collaboration between retailers and broadcasters. Really unique combination, could provide some very cool closed-loop studies, Um, obviously licensing that data at scale per market. And permissioning that to different brands and advertisers comes with a lot of complexity, but I would love to see some retailers and some broadcasters get together and deliver some cool reports. Uh, The second one I would love to see is creative optimization tools. I think this is going to be an enormous growth category over the next five years as we've rethought how to deliver the ad, when to deliver the ad, why to deliver the ad, but ultimately what is the ad? What is the creative that is coming at the end there? And I would love for those creative optimization tools to get together with publishers directly and start to understand what are some new dynamic data signals that they might be able to send to the creative tool in order to deliver a better, more relevant messaging, Um, particularly in a future where there is no user level data that's attributing that. There are tons of signals around the page, within the page that could be used to make that a more impactful kind of like creative moment. Last one, speaking of contextual, would be uh, contextual strategies and data management platforms. The DMP seems like it could be dead, according to everybody else, but I truly believe it's just having another iteration and evolution of understanding not just user-based strategies, because at the foundation of it, what does a data management platform do? It understands and tells a brand who likes their brand, who loves their brand, and who doesn't know their brand. And ultimately, you can use contextual signals to answer those same questions and build personalized experiences across a number of different endpoints, programmatic only being one of them, um, to, to have that kind of full funnel experience as a user. So would love to see those three kind of diverse categories and players come together and obviously would love to be at the heart of it. Yes. Oh, I love that answer. And 
Oh, I just always enjoy talking to you so much, Piper. <laughs> I feel like we could we can continue this on a, honestly for quite some time because I I love your perspective on the industry and really where we're going. And with that, we're we're sadly moving into our final final questions. Oh. Uh, the first I know I'm like I could keep going. We'll move some meetings for the rest of the day. Yeah, um, exactly. But what what do you want to say that you haven't already mentioned? And is there anything additional that you want the listeners to really hear and, and leaving with them some words of wisdom? Oh, well, high pressure. I mean, I think we've talked about the International Women's Month, just being, just empowering people around you and being a good human being that really cares about others. I think we have a great opportunity as we all re-enter the office to really come back to why, why we partner with each other and just being empathetic, honest individuals that want to help each other out and, you know, be in a, a very growth oriented culture in general. So that's, that's what I would take away is put yourself out there I think we've all become maybe creatures of habit over the past couple of years of being inside. And as the world allows us to go out and reconnect, you know, do so with an open heart and an open mind because a lot more partnership and collaboration is to come. I love that. And the last, last, the final one, I'm sad, but this podcast is all about individuals who have pioneered new ways to use data to deliver better customer experiences. So when you look to people you admire in the industry, who would you nominate for us to interview in an upcoming episode? So I'm going to have to give you a few fun people <laughs> because I think that that's, that's what's best about a podcast is learning a little bit more about someone's personality as opposed to a byline article that they write or anything else. Um, first person I would say is Vincent Flood. He's the editor-in-chief at Video Week, and he would be a ton of fun to, to have a little chit-chat with uh, and learn some more, some more things about the EMEA ecosystem. The second one, who will be very surprised to hear this, but I had a great presentation a few months ago from Ben Diamond, who's the head of EMEA at Playground XYZ. So really focused on attention and the future of attention and reporting on attention. And that I think is just a great concept of moving away from these sort of superficial metrics like viewability and towards something that's a new currency, but is not necessarily a revenue number, but is something so, so tangible and important to understand. And then the third one, just to give you a full diversity of EMEA, would be the COO of Digiseg, Bent Jacobson. They have been working on some cookie-less audience data, and they have some great mathematic and decisioning science as to how they build these audience segments. And they have taxonomies for every single country in Europe, North America, all over APAC. And as anybody who tries to leverage audience data in a number of different markets knows, that is absolutely impossible. So the fact that they've stood this up at scale, I think is really impressive. And I would love to, to hear you guys just kind of get off about, about any of the topics that we've talked about today. Awesome. I love that. Those are great recommendations. And sadly, 
Piper, this was this was awesome. Uh, this was a really this was really fun. I again, I love hearing kind of your vision and, and what you're focused on, and all of the value that you bring to the ecosystem, not only as an ad tech ecosystem, but also as a woman's network. And I love talking to strong women who are really focused on building out those networks. And I just wanted to say thank you so much. This was awesome. This was the highlight of oh. my day. <laughs> yes, thank you, Val absolutely the highlight of my day. Loved chatting with you. Love always chatting with you and everybody at InfoSum. And I look forward to waiting a little while so we can have a few more new topics to spin up and chit chat about when you come over here to London. Yes, definitely. Thank you so much, Piper. Thanks. Thanks again to Piper for joining us for this episode of Identity Architects. Really a fantastic discussion, not only about the future of the advertising industry, trends we're seeing right now around collaboration and identity and first party data strategies, but of course their discussion on Women's History Month. Truly inspiring to listen to. All that leaves for me to do is to remind you to hit that subscribe button so you know when the next episode of Identity Architects lands. But until then, thanks for listening.